You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Craven Cottage makes some noise for the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're going to look back at Saturday's heartbreaking, heartbreaking 2-1 defeat to Manchester City at the Etihad. Fulham came so close. They came seconds away from a famous point, the first team that would have been to do so at the Etihad this season. Yes, we benefited from a red card, but it was a valiant performance from the lads. But a late... Erling Haaland penalty won in controversial circumstances by Kevin De Bruyne means we came away from the Etihad pointless. But take the positives, at least it wasn't a hammering defeat. The goal difference is very much still healthy and there were some positives to take out the match, but it's hard to see any of the positives when it gets snatched away from you just like that. We've got loads of your questions at the end. I think today is one of those interesting pods where there's definitely a couple of ways you can look at the match and some of the decisions as a whole. Uh, And here to debate all of those with me is Dan Cook. Hello. Hi, Sammy. Stephen Sheldrake. Hello. Hey, guys. Good to be back. And George Rossiter. Hello. Hello, Sammy. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Although I don't know how fine I was um, at uh, at 5pm yesterday. I actually really don't normally get that animated at football. I'm normally quite calm, like not when we win, but especially when we lose, I normally kind of take it on the chin, but I found that particularly gutting yesterday, just the way it all fell apart with seconds to go. And then when Bert Leno gets that close uh, to saving the penalty and you think the ultimate dream uh, has happened and then obviously it just squirmed underneath him. Um, Dan, before we do any dissection of the match, uh, what were the best three word reviews that came in? Yeah, so I went to Twitter to to tackle the three word reviews. There are lots of good ones as usual. We had Fulham Canada with Kevin the Diver, um, which you know that's going to stoke some debate already. PFFC eleven with for Fork's sake, paying a little homage to uh, Guy Fawkes and Bonfire Night. One of our own Adam Farquharson with Etty Had to be referencing Erling Haaland, which I loved. AF's always great with these things. Yeah. Nick Marcus with really city ending, followed by the poo emoji. Rick Cardis with De Bruyne's dirty dancing. And finally, Fulham in the bluegrass, who racked up a lot of likes with Jedi's excessive force. Yeah, some nice gallows humour in there uh, to uh, to make up for the pain of what happened yesterday. Normally, I want to go through the game chronologically, but to be honest, I just think that like there was too many key incidents and key debates. So we'll come on to maybe some of the uh, things earlier in the match first. But George, the debate is, was it a valiant performance against one of the best teams in the world and we were unlucky? Or did Fulham have an unbelievable opportunity against 10 men to pick up a famous result and we weren't ambitious enough? 
I've seen a lot of debate either way. I firmly am in the camp of 10 men or not, it's the 10 best players in the world managed by the best manager in the world on their own patch. But I can see the other side that yesterday was a phenomenal opportunity to get a, uh, a famous draw, a famous win, whatever. It did feel like at times in the second half, we were just holding on. And, you know, should we be doing that against 10 men, whoever they are? I think it's a mix of both. I think Marco obviously saw that there was a result there to play for because he saw that he said in the press, didn't he, that there wasn't much of a change of shape when they just put Rodri into the back line. But equally, he obviously noticed that there was an opportunity to counter them later on when you're putting Daniel James as the striker and Kevin Mbappé as the winger because there's nothing in that plan other than pure pace. Um, and it got us a little bit of joy. You know, Mbabu and James brought the ball forward a couple of times and there was one attack where Kevin Mbabu specifically made the wrong choice with the pass, I think, in added time, which let us down. But equally, I was saying to um, the people I was sat next to at the game that Man City with nine men, let alone ten, are going to beat most teams in this league with the quality they have. Um, so there is a bit of both. It's not like most teams you go against ten men you know, the, they still had a back line that was Akanji, Ake, Stones, Rodri. That's still, it's not easy to break down, but I can understand people's frustrations that we've not gone for it more when they see the success we got on the counter late on when Mbabu and James came on. It, it is it is frustrating and maybe it wouldn't be such a talking point had we not conceded late on, but it is what it is and... Um, We've not taken anything from the game and it is incredibly frustrating. I think the tricky thing, and, and as George mentions it with, you know, the the change that, that City did with dropping Rodri in is that, yes, they had 10 men, but when City had the ball, it didn't really make a difference because they compensated for it by losing a man out of the defensive line, which meant that going forward, they were still pretty much just as potent. And that's really tricky because I think if you go to gung-ho with that City will just pick you apart and so it's easy to look at oh you're playing against 10 men because most times when you play against 10 men they lose a man out of the forward line and they stick an extra man at the back and City didn't do that they very much decided we're going to play as we play with one fewer in defence and just back themselves to still create those sequences and put those passes together to cause us problems and they did and I still think that Fulham deserve credit in that situation because we defended really, really well against a City team who wasn't necessarily that impeded by the red card. So I think that there's still a lot of credit in there because if you look at the the, the chances City had, they were really quite minimal and not many teams restrict City to so few chances. And what Dan's saying here about how they've not really changed the way they're playing by moving Roger into the back line is spot on because you could see it at the game that when they had 11 men, it was never a back four in possession because Jao Cancelo would move into the midfield. But when they went to 10, it was just a case of push Ake a bit wide, slot Rodri in, and then Rodri can have the freedom Cancelo did when they had 10 men to be that ball player from deep. Um, and they moved Bernardo a bit deeper as well in the second half. And yeah, it, it just didn't really change how City were playing and their patterns of play. And that's, that's what led to the result that came. 
I mean, Stephen, I saw you tweet after the game saying Fulham have lost that game because we gave 10 men Man City a bit too much respect, um, in my opinion. Didn't have any attacking impetus and the pressure will eventually get to you against the best. Um, do you still hold by that opinion? I can imagine it was one born out of frustration straight <laughs> after the final whistle, but now you've had uh, time to sleep on it. It's a strong statement, especially when you read it out loud, Sammy. Uh, uh, I've digested it now. And I actually stick to what I'm saying whilst I, and it is a bit of both. There's no doubt about it, right? Completely valiant, respectable and admirable performance by Fulham. And Silva's done a fantastic job and the team has done a fantastic job at stopping, you know, the most attacking side in the league and limiting them to very small chances. And we were very unlucky. So I'm not taking that away. However, I think there's certain moments in the game and when you go and get that equaliser and they lose Cancelo, who, in my opinion, is one of their top three players, Haaland's on the bench as well as Foden. I feel like at that moment, or at least at half time, before they bring on the big guns, there has to be an opportunity. It's like, right, we are a fantastic attacking side. That is what we are known for. And if you're going to have a go at the, you know, the biggest team in the league, that is the window of opportunity get your head you know get your necks in front get get up 2-1 and then just like hold the fort for dear life probably concede an equalizer but you walk away with a draw and i know we'd be having a different discussion if it was 1-1 at the end of the day we'd all be celebrating but i think we just eventually the pressure is always gonna um fold like we saw when the Harden scored the offside goal that was the you know the biggest warning sign it was like it's coming it's coming it's just a matter of time and I know we we're holding on for dear lives. And of course, it was one minute ago. Can't get more painful than that. But I believe we had the attacking quality to have a go and have a few more shots at Edison rather than the severe lack of chances we had. We had, you know, we didn't pin them back. So City just had the freedom to bring everyone up top without really much consequence. And I think given Silver's style of play, I was a bit disappointed we didn't just go at them for a bit or at least for a 15, 20 minute spell. But that's just my view. But I guess the big. Miss Dan was Alexander Mitrovic. I think if he'd been on the pitch, I think it'd been so different. And it again comes back down to like kind of that attacking squad depth. Now we've lost Niskins Cabano and um, we haven't done a podcast since we found out that news. So, you know, get well soon, Niskins. Obviously, you know, a real bitter blow to lose him for such a long time. But now we don't have Niskins. You had a half fit Harry Wilson who then picked up a another knock during the game. You have 34-year-old Willian who's trying his best, but like there's only so much he can do by himself. Dan James. We brought Kevin and Babu on as a winger. And then Carlos Vinicius up front, who did well for the goal. We've got to give him a lot of credit, but didn't do a lot else. And I felt like City were able to treat this like a five-a-side game where there's one lump up top who doesn't know how to play football and four decent footballers. And eventually you just realise as a team, oh, we can just leave him up front. Like, even if he gets the ball in a dangerous area, we're probably going to get back in time to close him down anyway. And it, it meant that I felt like City were able to have 10 men because really they just didn't have to worry that Fulham had any danger going forward. And I think back to a couple of the games in recent years where City have been toppled at the Etihad. Um, two, ex two examples above other than big six teams come to mind are Crystal Palace and Wolves. And both of them have a dangerous player, like one player that could change a game. Wilfred Zaha for Palace, Adama Traore for Wolves, so certainly at the time when 
Wolves did get that famous win. And it felt like, Dan, no one on the pitch for Fulham that could do something magic that would make City worry and think, actually, let's not go everyone into Fulham's box here because actually there's, you know, Carlos Vinicius, Harry Wilson, William, none of them were going to do something out of the ordinary. And I think City kind of knew that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Sam. I just thought Carlos Vinicius really, really stank yesterday. I just thought he was... Really poor. Apologise to me. I, I just, I, just <laughs> I, I tried to take a level head to these things, but I just found his performance so frustrating. And I'm not discrediting his effort. Like, yes, there was effort there, and that's that's okay because you know, at least if you're not going to play well, try that. Fine, but it was his inability to make the ball stick to him that caused us so many problems. And that's why we've come out of this game with 29% possession because there were times when the ball goes long to Carlos Vinicius. And in that situation, Alexander Mitrovic holds that ball up. He makes it stick. And this is how we play. You know, this is how we hurt City when we went to the Etihad last season, the FA Cup. Ball goes into Alexander Mitrovic in the middle of the park. He's good at holding it up. He brings his wingers into play. And other than for the penalty... Carlos Vinicius just didn't do that. Like he just, just, just didn't seem to be able to control the ball. He was not particularly good in the physical battle. And actually when Dan James came on, it did make a difference because at least it offered something, you know, it, it gave City something to think about, you know, where if we had had Mitrovic, they'd have been struggling because you've got that physical battle in, in terms of, of, aerial duels and just someone throwing themselves about. Whereas Dan James gives you that problem of this guy's really quick. He's going to try and get in behind. Whereas with, with Carlos, there was just neither. And that was a big problem. And I think we'd have looked so, so much more dangerous. And this is, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say. We'd have looked so much more dangerous with our striker who scored 43 goals last season, but we would have done. And I think we would have made more of that game had we had him. And I think the biggest concern for me then comes off that is that this doesn't feel like an acceptable second choice striker to me. I'm, I, and I, I, that, that worries me because we were saying the same thing about Rodrigo Muniz last season. And so far, and especially off yesterday showing, it, Carlos Vinicius hasn't showed me that he's any better than Rodrigo Muniz. And as someone who's not particularly a Rodrigo Muniz fan, that's problematic. I mean, almost it feels like we've signed a very similar player to, to Rodrigo Muniz, who actually isn't that much of an upgrade. We've got a couple of questions on him later. You almost wonder if actually what Fulham need as a second striker is someone who maybe hasn't got much finishing ability. Maybe isn't someone that gets an awful lot of goals, but fundamentally can hold the ball up. I mean, almost you might as well get Akin Fenwa out of retirement and it might just like help in just in terms of like, okay, at least he's just going to hold the ball up for Fulham. He's going to allow us to, to play the way we do. I, I fully agree with you, Dan, that like if he, if he can't hold the ball up and then he isn't that great at finishing or hasn't got them out of, out of pace, then I'm not 100% sure what, what he offers on the pitch. Now, George, your player ratings, which I love them every week, George, they, they really get, they get the people going. Um, you gave uh, Vinicius a, a six and a half out of 10. Um, so maybe you saw something slightly different in, uh, in what he offered. Yeah, I'm just stand up for him a bit here. I don't think he was that bad. Um, when I do the ratings, my kind of baselines are six out of 10. Like that's kind of what I work off myself. So it was a, it was a fairly average performance. I thought, as Dan mentioned, he was he was a bit of a nuisance. He did he did the effort was there. He did throw himself a bit at the centre backs, and when it came to the penalty, it is a nice ball through to Wilson for that. Um, 
I'll agree with the hold-up play in the first touch. I don't think it was up to scratch, but I think that was also the case for quite a lot of players. I mean, when James and Babu came on, their first touch was a little bit missing. So I don't know if it comes down to a mix of a lack of match sharpness and also the conditions in the second half especially were, were, were a bit dire. Um, I think ultimately he comes across a bit of a penalty, a penalty box striker in the two times where he's had you know, significant minutes at West Ham and at Man City, I don't think he's had a chance at all. Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, you judge strikers on how many goals they score. What what, what are the things we judge Mitrovic on? I know his game has developed under Marco Silva, but the, the headlines are the amount of goals he's scoring. And that's because we aim our game at him and therefore he prospers from it. Whereas with Vinicius, he's not had a chance created for him. Now, I know you can't, it's quite hard to bring that up in a game away at Manchester City when no team creates too many chances. But I feel like until I've seen what he can do in the penalty box, I don't want to judge him too harshly. I'm not not knocking you here at all, George, because I think that's fair enough. But like, and this is more just as a wider point. But just looking at the the output of Carlos Vinicius yesterday, and I think this really does tell the story. Dribbles attempted two, dribbles successfully completed zero. Passes attempted 12, passes completed four. I mean, like, it, it's it's rough and it's it's just you need in that situation, especially when you look at the way that City press and you know that they're going to try and force you into doing things you don't want to do. And Fulham still will try and play out from the back. But that heavily depends on that ball going into that mid central pivot of our centre forward. And if they're completing a third of their passes and not going past anyone. They're just not contributing positively towards the team. I'd say he probably contributed negatively overall. I mean, maybe I'm being naive here, but is that, if we're looking at stats, aren't everyone's stats going to look a little bit worse at the Etihad? I mean, the way that players affect the game, like in most games, we're going to praise Harrison Reed and Jao Palinha, but I'm sure their stats are a bit down because of the way we played was deeper and narrower. I've said this in the ratings and on the podcast, especially after the Tottenham game and a bit after the Arsenal game. But when we go away to these bigger sides, we do set up narrow, we do set up deeper. And therefore, you're not seeing Harrison Reid in the you know the forward eight where he's linking up with Harry Wilson on the right, which therefore means that Jao Palin is covering for the other two midfielders. And you're noticing their effect on the game more, whereas you don't see that when you're in a more narrow defensive setup. Maybe it'd be a night there. Of course, but I think when you say like we completed 234 passes yesterday and four of those came from our centre forward and yes, we've touched upon this 10 man thing, but I think you've just got to be asking for more than that. Like it's just, it's, it just meant that we did end up invariably getting dropping deeper because we kept on giving the ball away. And Marco spoke about this and, and this is where I think people are justified in saying, could we have been more ambitious? Because I think Marco's press conference afterwards I think he was trying to be more ambitious. It just wasn't happening on the pitch. And, and he, he he blamed, you know, the the lack of quality of times that we showed. And, and I think that that's spot on. And there were situations that we could have done more with. And I think ultimately, yeah, if we'd have had Alexander Mitrovic, we would have done more with it. Yeah, like even when you look at the goal, which, you know, Vinny does do a very good free ball for, he chests it straight into a City player who yeah. then bounces off, fortunately for him, to set it up. And I'm not saying I could do any better, you know, <laughs> but... No, he got a stroke a of luck, force. but it was a stroke of luck. It was a stroke of luck. Um, 
And you know what? I just, even if his ability to control the ball isn't that great, I just want to see him getting at defenders and giving them a nightmare, getting a booking, making them sweat, chasing every possible ball. You know, he looks like he should be a pacey enough player, a little bit more pacey than Mitro. I just want to see more aggression. And then, you know, we went down to 10 men. It's just the opportunity where you just want to see him get in their faces. And it felt like mm. he just faded a bit. And very, very frustrating. I completely understand your point defending him, though. Um, and players take time to bed in. But you have to be left, I think, a bit disappointed. I think even Abubakar Kamara probably done a better job yesterday. It's actually not right. Just- it's probably fair enough. And just one last point, Sammy, I'm sorry, I'll keep going on about this, but I'm just having a look at his touch map and Carlos Vinicius's touch that came closest to goal was in the 11th minute. And I would say he's roughly 30 yards out from goal. He didn't have a single touch in or around the city penalty area, which again, that's a problem. There was one moment that for me just, um, it was when Wilson went, kind of through on goal in the second half and he gets played. It's a lovely ball over the top. Wilson then he's, um, he's run a long way and he kind of slashes at it nearly goes out he nearly hits the corner flag actually by the, by the time. But, um, you can see it on the replay that just, you need a centre forward to at least be matching um, the City defence there. And, and Wilson has no other option other than to shoot because Carlos Vinicius is not up with play. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot left to be desired hard to, I would quite like to see him maybe in a game where he is allowed to have a bit more of an impact on the game you know the games that he's played so far West Ham away I mean okay fair enough not not the best team but still a, a difficult away game I'd love to see him in some ways I would because but in some ways I wouldn't because obviously it mean probably Mitrovic is out but I'd like to see him in a game where maybe he's got a bit more of a chance um, rather than at the Etihad um, let's come on to the penalty the Man City penalty not the Fulham penalty which was Stonewall it was the right decision it was a red card I thought everything was was spot on with that decision and I was I was pleased obviously delighted with the outcome and uh, well stuck away by Andreas Pereira gotta say um a bit of a debate there um but let's come on to that another day the Kevin De Bruyne penalty I've got a, an opinion that I think will go against most people listening with this I think that several things are true here one Anthony Robinson is naive and makes a mistake. He shouldn't put his foot in there. Now, we've all seen the replay. Two, Kevin De Bruyne goes down way too easily and the contact he gets from Anthony Robinson does not warrant him going down like that. But three, VAR should not have overturned it and it was correct. In terms of the way that VAR should work, and if we're to accept VAR for the purpose that it is there for clear and obvious errors. I don't believe that VAR should overturn that decision. Now you can say that in the moment, was it a penalty? No, I don't think it was a penalty. If I look back at it, but ultimately people moan about VAR, but then they moan that the decision is not overturned. Actually, what we're doing here is trusting the referees on field instinctive call that he thought it was a penalty. Do I agree with that? No, but I agree with the fact that a referee should be allowed to make a call and VAR should just be there. If it turned out that Anthony Robinson didn't touch him, you know, a la Coventry last year when he gave away that penalty that was clearly just that 
He didn't get anywhere near him. It was literally, he just kicked the air and, and that, that's, that's a wrong call. But yesterday he did touch him. And I think you could see it from Anthony Robinson's reaction that he knows it's a penalty. He, he he's must be frustrated and knows that Kevin De Bruyne has gone down like that but that all the players in our team would do the exact same thing. And you can compare it to the Willian decision last week, which wasn't given, which in my opinion was a penalty. But I saw again why VAR does not overturn it is because it's not clear and obvious and we have to trust the referee's instinct in these cases. And we can criticise the ref for making a bad call all we want, but I don't believe that VAR should overturn it. So that's my opinion, but I would be very, very interested to hear the opinion of the floor of, of whether that uh, is, is agreed with. Stephen, I'll, uh, I'll start with you. Um, I know we love debating things on podcasts, so I have to apologise, but I uh, agree with everything you're saying, to be honest, 100%. Uh, the reason we've let that go is because we invited too much pressure and Anthony Robertson dived in like that and it was really naive um it was silly and yeah it's a ridiculously soft penalty but any sort of contact uh lashing out like that it's a penalty so whilst it pains me um i think the thing that pains me more is that he just jumped into a tackle that wasn't needed and probably wouldn't have led to anything there was certainly cover and obviously leno in the sticks he could have probably prevented a goal at that stage um, it's panic and, though yeah. because it's Kevin De Bruyne. Normally, yeah. I would I always do the whole uh, well, he's not going anywhere, but it is yeah. Kevin De Bruyne who, if anyone's going to go somewhere from an unlikely situation, <laughs> it is probably Kevin De Bruyne. So I can understand Robinson's mm. decision there that he's just like I've, I've got to get this ball away. Like if you're pl- up against a, a player of his quality, then then you'll know about it. Um, George, your opinion on the penalty? Yeah, again, and I know we love debate, but I can't disagree with a lot of it. Um, I think uh, in a game where it's the 94th, 95th minute, you know, the stadium are on the, on to the city's players' backs to find that winner um, and a player comes jumping. I, I don't think anyone can argue. Obviously, it goes down a bit dramatically, but I don't think we can argue that any player in our team or any other team would be any different. Um, and I agree with you that it's not a clear and obvious one to uh, overturn. The only thing I disagree with is that I'd, I'd have absolutely overturned the William one against Everton, but that's um, a point for last week. And again, it just brings up the thing of consistency with the use of VAR more than anything. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a penalty. And I just think it was a tense moment and Jedi's lunged in and he's he, you can see the frustration, like you said. He knew it was a penalty and he knew what he'd done and it was just hugely frustrating for everyone. I'm going to disagree. I'm I'm taking it on, Sammy, because I think that this should be a clear and obvious error. And now this comes down to, okay, trying to separate out what the actual laws are and how we officiate games and how I also think football should be. But I just think in that moment, the delay between contact and going down means that he has not been impeded. If you have to think after you've been kicked that now I'm going to go down, that's not impeded you because otherwise you would have gone down straight away. The same thing happened in the forest against Brentford game yesterday. Emmanuel Dennis got kicked, stopped and then jumped up in the air and landed on top of the ball. And he looked an absolute tit. And I think Kevin De Bruyne looked a similar tit yesterday doing this. And I think football just needs to move away from this whole concept of, Oh, any contact that's a foul because it's not because you have to be actually stopping someone or preventing someone from doing what they're doing 
in order for it to be a foul. And I think given the whole movement this season on trying to be a bit more lenient and allow a bit more physical contact in games, I don't get why that no long that doesn't apply in the box. It seems to apply in the middle of the park. And if that happens in the middle of the park and De Bruyne jumps up like that, I think there's a question that maybe the referee lets that go. But suddenly, as soon as we enter the penalty area, this this whole notion of any contact and you go down and it's a penalty, I think it's ludicrous. And there's no way he needs to go down there. He knows exactly what he's doing. And this is where it's really irritating because you hear people like Jermaine Gina say, oh, it's smart from De Bruyne. It's really clever. No one wants to see that. I don't want to see that brilliant oh it's clever he's absolutely conned an entire stadium and a referee and a load of people in a truck at whatever wherever they do it at the England training ground I've got no interest in that and I think it's it's ridiculous and it made me really angry watching the replays over and over again because ultimately I just don't think that should ever be a penalty and we've had similar ones in 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 the past you know I, I thought of Tom Kearney against West Ham in the the lockdown season yeah. when Adam Olukma missed that penalty. Ultimately, that shouldn't be a penalty. It was the slightest contact and TC's bought it and we're guilty of it as well. It's just, it really angered me and I do think that that should be a clear and obvious error. But doesn't come down to judgment. And that's with all of these things, when you see it in real time, does that look like a penalty or does that look like someone's there? And so we've got it. like, I I don't think it's a penalty either. Don't get me wrong. Like it isn't. And clearly the contact isn't enough to make him do that. But the referee in that moment, and my, my, my first reaction was that it's a penalty. My first reaction, I saw it. And look, I'm only watching on the TV. It wasn't there in the ground. But my first instant was just like, oh, why have you done that? Because you saw the you saw the leg go towards it, and now we're for, for slowing it down frame by frame. I just think that we like there has to be an element of like of trust in referees. Cool, that was the whole point of VAR in the first place. It might be me being a bit more of a purist about this rather than necessarily my opinion on the exact decision. No, I, I, that's totally fair enough, and I completely I, I've I've used the whole. I don't think that should be overturned because it's not a clear and obvious error. And it's it, this is one of the things that people misunderstand about VAR is it's not looking for the right decision every time or quote unquote because everything in the in these moments in football is subjective, and there will never be a consensus on this penalty. And there'll be people who say it's definitely a penalty, and there'll people who say it won't wasn't. Ultimately, whatever decision was made on the pitch will have been the prevailing decision that VAR suggested. However, I think this this moves away from the problem with VAR and more over to actually the, the the laws and the implementation of them is that I think we're just into a bit of a, a silly time with some of these these decisions and, and some of the the things that players can get away with doing in the penalty area. Because De Bruyne in that situation actually had no interest in doing anything other than trying to win a penalty. He knew exactly what he was doing as he spun then. There's not much on. And as he said, yes, Kevin De Bruyne can do silly things with the football. But I just think that we're in a terrible period where if that's a penalty, and Steve Cooper said it for the Forest game, there should have been four penalties in their game. And you just get into ludicrous territory where just just every time a player gets into the box, they're going to go down at any sign of contact. But the thing with the Forest-Brentford game and what I disagreed with in that game is that it was overturning something. So that Visa penalty was one, was one of like three or four kind of minimal penalty shouts that weren't given on field by the pen, by the referee. He was fairly consistent. And then just VAR decided that one out of the four, despite them all being kind of equally nothing, 
they then overturned it. So that's my thing. I like fully disagree. If they'd have gotten that whole game and none of them got given as penalties and, and, and they stuck with the on-field decision and VAR didn't get involved, I would have understood it. But this is what I don't think happened in our game yesterday. It's actually VAR just went... He's touched him. It's a bit nothing, but it's not. It's not enough for me, us to send you to the monitor. So that's where I kind of agree on it. And look, it's it's a tricky one, Stephen. I know you want to jump in here. Um, no, I mean I always want to jump in. <laughs> I, I just you want to Anthony Robinson into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, De Bruyne has just done Robbo with his turn, and it's a brilliant piece of skill. Invited the challenge. Robbo didn't have to dive in. He could have held his ground. He's he's suck, been sucked into it and made minimal contact. And it's a penalty. It's a ridiculously soft penalty. But I totally agree with what Georgia said that, you know, if you're given that, why are you not giving the Willian one the week before? Which I thought, in my opinion, is worse than yesterday's one. Um, and it's about that consistency. But then, hey, every ref's different, right? Every game's different. But that that's it. Is it for me? It's like we're all asking for consistency. Ultimately, referees are human beings, and I just don't. It's always like, oh, we want consistency. It's just like, right, okay, but one ref's different to another. It's more. It's infuriating when there's not consistency within a game because you're like you're the same person. You have the ability to be consistent to yourself. But like, why are we expecting Graham Scott to be the same as? I'm trying to think of another referee's name. Michael Oliver. Michael Oliver. I don't know. Um, why? <laughs> you can see who lives rent-free in my head. That Graham Scott was the only referee <laughs> that I could name off the top of my head. But look, it's it's a really frustrating one. Yesterday, I know that um, there is a lot of debates online about that penalty. More, I think there's actually more Arsenal fans as angry as Fulham fans. Obviously, with, with everything that happened um, yesterday, it was a gutting way though to lose a football match. And um, you know, it's it's it's. I think this is going to be debated for for a long time to come this game it was such a kind of interesting case of it 10 v 11 but the 10's the best player the best is the best team in the world should you be more ambitious should you be the favorites in a game when you are playing probably the best team in the world but they're down to 10 men you know and the penalty and all of that i think it's gonna be an interesting case study for uh, and i think it's gonna rumble on for for a few days uh, to come particularly when uh, it's against a high caliber of opponent but we're gonna leave it there we're gonna take a break and afterwards we're gonna get in some of your questions Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Dan Cook, Stephen Sheldrake and George Rossiter. Still a lot of uh, pain on the panel today after that defeat. It's all quite raw. Still less than 24 hours after the game. And uh, yeah, I think there's still a bit of pent up anger. Let's get into some of your questions, uh, which we went to Instagram for today for a change instead of Twitter. Always nice to switch up the platform. Uh, And I'm going to start off with Ed Hunt, who says, how do we replace Harrison Reed?" For Man U, um, is it stick both Pereira and Bobby Decker Dover Reed in midfield? Kenny Tete also suspended uh, for that game. Um, Georgia, it's an interesting selection dilemma. It was a bit of talk in the uh, in the build up about whether Mitrovic should be rested so that he gets to play against Man United because he was on four yellow cards. And uh, little did we think about that actually uh, Reed and uh, Tete were also on four, so uh, we'll now miss out. And that's a uh, that's quite a big blow for us um, uh, against United, um, particularly as we just got Tete back. It's it's pretty infuriating. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, well, th- there's two dilemmas there, isn't there? I mean, at right back, you've just seen Kevin and Babu get his first minutes for a while, admittedly, on the wing. Um, whether that means he's done enough in training to earn Marco's trust again, who knows? Because obviously, in a 
presser however many weeks ago. He said that he needed Mbabu to get to a higher level to be back in his plans. Um, and obviously Bobby Reid will be back from suspension and he's been playing that right-back position for a few weeks. So maybe it's a case of familiarity just for the one game before the World Cup. Um, in the midfield, it's just tricky, isn't it? Because there, there is a like-for-like, like, but the like-for-like... He's not in favour with the fans um, in, in Nathaniel Chalabar after what happened at the Newcastle game. L- like you mentioned, there is the opportunity to maybe play Bobby Reid there. You know, he, he did play as, as an eight in the championship on a fair few occasions. I personally think I go for Tom Kearney. Um, I feel like against any team at home, we've got a chance. I think we've got less of a chance if we've not got Mitrovic, Tete and Reid granted, but I think we've got a chance. Um, and there has been quite a few occasions recently where... Marco's seen the game level and he has brought on Kearney for Reed to try and take control of the game in our final third. So I'd go Kearney and Bobby Reed in those positions. Um, but there are options. After the Chalaba red card and with the time and Babu spent out the side, I, I think I'd go sensible really and go for Bobby and Tom Kearney. I think I'd probably expect to see Andreas Pereira drop a little bit deeper. I think, I mean... It didn't work in his favour in general, but that's that was the, the the position he played in largely at Manchester United. And me and Jack Totsonish, and apparently also at Flamengo um, this year. And I don't think it's his best position, but he's more than capable of playing in that eight role. And so then I think the question almost becomes: Do we continue to play with a ten, and is that Tom Kearney, or do you, I mean ultimately you could also consider shifting? either a Harry Wilson or a, a Willian inside and playing that 10 role, or do you play a little bit differently and almost play like a, a flatter midfield and look to have Polina at the base and play Pereira alongside Kearney? But I think ultimately I would expect Andreas Pereira to be the person who's tasked mostly with fulfilling Harrison Reed's duties in terms of getting about the pitch, hitting those sort of half spaces and just all round being a bit of a nuisance. Do we think there's no way back for Nathaniel Chalaba? Surely Josh Onum is more likely though, because Josh Onum has been the one who's been on the bench, not Nat. So I think if anything, it, it would be less of a surprise to see Josh Onum on the pitch than uh, than it would be to see Nat Chalaba. And I guess if you take into account the sort of player Josh Onum is, he's probably the most sensible person to bring in in terms of profile of player. Now, quality the issue if, if is he good enough but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we did see Josh on, on the pitch next weekend because we are at that point without Harrison Reed that we do need to fill a hole somehow okay next question I'll go to you on this one Stephen Matty Hansford said brilliant effort by the lads but who would be more disappointed Robinson or Leno I assume um, he's referring to the fact that Robinson gave away the penalty but then Leno didn't save it I I I think we've kind of discussed the penalty to death, but we didn't discuss how close Bert Leno came to saving that penalty. And that you can never criticise a goalkeeper for not saving a penalty, because, and that's definitely not what I'm doing here. But uh, he, uh, he will be gutted because he got there. Um, he almost over, he almost oversaved it, didn't he? He went too far. Um, it was a rubbish penalty, very reminiscent of, of Mitro's against Villa a couple of weeks ago, which also, um, squirmed onto the goalkeeper. So yeah, he'll be, um, he'll be livid because that could have been a real moment, but you know, it's a penalty and you're not expected to save them. Yeah. We couldn't come any closer to drawing with City as we did, you know, because 94th minute penalty, then getting your hand to it. 
Leno has been exceptional for us so far and I absolutely love him being in between the sticks. I know it was a little initial bit of does Rodak deserve to be dropped? But um, I think Leno's been superb and is the goalkeeper to take us to the next level if we're hoping to maybe be a top 10 team, which would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, with both the goals, you know, even the first goal, it was very close. Uh, and then, you know, it was right at Leno, but it was such a rocket of a shot, wasn't it? Um, in the middle of the goal. And then that penalty, he's done so well to go the right way and get a hand on it. But I think when I watch it back, he's so focused trying to also cover that top corner as well because Harlan could just ping it anywhere and so he's kind of gone right in the middle to cover both corners and Harlan's hit it low and hard so he's got a hand to it but slipped through um I don't blame Leno whatsoever saving a penalty is super hard and when you're up against Harland who is the most intimidating player to step up against you yeah probably in the world right now um the feel the fact that you got so close um, I only give it credit. I don't. I don't blame Leno. Um, but you know, you could say it was a bit of a soft hand, and maybe he should do a bit better. But I just think, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine being set up against Haaland for penalties. So I don't blame Leno at all on that one. And I think Jedi would be more disappointed out of the two of them. The worst thing about it all, Sammy, was that from the away end, with the penalty being at the other end of the ground, there's a brief moment where that ball disappears, and it looks like Leno swallowed it up. Oh. And it and and there's just this horrible moment where the Fulham fans and also the City fans at that end of the ground thought he saved that, and you don't see the ball until it sort of rolls up the back of the net, and then it appears, and you're like, oh, there was just just an additional moment of like, oh my god, he saved it. This is incredible. This is the best day of my life, and then you just see it nestle. It was horrible. And I, th- I think when discussing Leno, we also have to factor in that he did have a brilliant game. He he, there was times in that game where he was the reason. We had a chance, you know, that there was an early save from distance from Kevin De Bruyne. There were multiple times when, whether from corners or just from crosses, that they had chances in the six-yard box or from similarly close range and he stopped them. And like, like in the ratings, I thought he was our best player yesterday and kept us in the game for long periods. So that, do not begrudge him at all for struggling to save a penalty on a slippy surface as well, you know, so... Yeah, no, I, I, I totally. He was, he was awesome um, yesterday, and uh, no, he's dead. And it's not necessarily just his saves, is it? It's his all-round presence in the box. And I think when you're up against a, the cosh like we were at points yesterday, just knowing that we've got someone um, of his quality who can claim crosses and just give that all-round confidence to to the back line um, is huge. Um, Harry Manch says, do you think taking three points against Man United basically secures safety? Um, George, I think Harry's getting uh, quite overexcited by, uh, by Sunday. But I mean, surely now, though, if we did manage to get over 20 points before the World Cup, I mean, I mean, that would be just an unreal uh, position uh, for us to be in. But uh, lest we forget Hull, who had a very similar points tally uh, in 0809. And whilst they didn't get relegated, I guess maybe that goes to prove the point. Um, they came all mightily close. So uh, it's certainly not impossible. But yeah, you'd imagine three points against Man United. And uh, wow, the, the position that we'd be in would be would be unreal. Well, there's two things here. Um no, we're not safe because we're on 22 points and not 38 or 40. And you never know what can go wrong in the second half of the season. You know, if Polinia and Mitrovic go to the World Cup and both suffer ACL injuries, we're in a lot of trouble. But let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, the other side of it is 
if we did go and beat Manchester United on Sunday, let, let's just focus on how brilliant a total of 22 points from 15 games is for a team that's just come up. You know, we, we, we'd be in the top half. We'd have about one and a half points a game. That would be fantastic. But um, equally, if we get a point, I think that's still a good result. Uh, what's the Jack Russell's name that's absolutely yapping its head off? It's Joey. He's he's having a moment, bless him. Fair enough. Uh, always nice to hear from the dog on the podcast as well. Uh, I know Taffy tried to get involved in uh, my recording uh, earlier as, as ever. A um, couple more questions. Um, there's an interesting one here. Um, uh, Noah says, will it be over or under 0.5 on the number of times Fulham actually wear this season's away kit? Um <laughs> Stephen, we just don't seem to like it, do we? I mean, genuinely, I think maybe Newcastle is going to be the only time we might actually see the uh, the away kit. It's weird how Marcus Silva apparently has um, kind of said that he prefers Fulham to wear the home kit wherever possible. And then we keep wearing the black one, which is obviously our third strip, which was last season's away kit, which is a banging strip. So I kind of like seeing the black much more than the kind of weird curtain. It looks like a um, a seat pattern design on the tube or something, doesn't it? Our, our away kit. But it is a bit weird how we just seem to be uh, not wearing it. And a bit crap for those that went out and invested in the damn thing. Yeah, I personally quite like it. Um, I Yeah, it's, it's a really strange one, isn't it? But, you're, you know, the first strip is really nice. It's not that fresh and new because it's basically the, you know, away kit from the previous season uh, with a new logo. But, I mean, we, we play in black and white, so I've got no problem with that. But it would be nice to see the uh, Craven Cottage brickwork being represented a little bit more. Uh, but, yeah, maybe they need to do a, a 50% off sale on that one before Christmas. Uh, I haven't got my new shirt yet. I bought the gold one, which I um, trading top, which I love. And I'm eagerly awaiting the home top um, just because it's just such a nice texture and design. Um, my favourite since uh, the Bet Victor one when we were in the Prem with the um, Crane Cottage on the on the back as well. That was really nice. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> interesting no i'd have no idea why we're not quite uh wearing it so much so yeah i reckon uh, newcastle will be the only thing dan i think part of the reason might be that it's not necessarily that far away from white and like in terms of kit clashes i know market doesn't like it in general but it doesn't stand out as too necessarily different from a team that we'd have to change away from wearing white from it's like quite a, quite a pale minty green and mm. i think I think part of that problem might be that if you're in that split second when you lift your head up, is that colour distinctive enough from your opposition shirt for you to not have to actually think like, hang on, is that one of my players? And I wonder if that's a a factor. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the games that we have actually worn because obviously Leeds we wore the black, then yesterday we wore the black, but you can imagine Leeds kind of minty green against white would not be that distinctive for the Fulham players. Obviously we were never going to wear a minty greeny blue against the side that plays in um sky blue. So yeah, uh did we wear the black at uh, no we wore the white at Forest. I'm trying to think of other times that we've worn and we wore the black kit um at Spurs again, yeah, minty green against white. So no, it probably was just actually some overall kind of poor thinking, really. For it, it it screams a third kit, doesn't it? Actually, actually, that's that's what the the kind of greeny bluey one that we've got. It screams a third kit, and the black one screams much more away kit. So, look, I don't really tend to get too 
concerned about where, where or when we wear kits as long as generally there's a Fulham badge on it then I'm generally fairly happy but uh yeah it, it is interesting um I like this question from Dominic uh, it says question for the pod first of all he says love the pod Sammy makes driving from Orlando to Tampa much more bearable in most of our Premier League seasons we claim one big scalp if you had to put money on it, which scalp do you think we might claim this season? So obviously we came all mightily close to a good scalp um, yesterday. I, I assume for the sake of definition, we're, include, we're saying that a scalp is against any one of the big six home or away. Um, so yeah, Dan, your, your thoughts? Uh, I'll, go, I'll go to everyone on this. Who do you think might be the scalp this season if there is to be one? This is the year. This is the year we do Chelsea, Sammy. This is the year. It's gonna the, the, this quest, I, oh both I don't um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, um, uh, I I think we've we've got a genuine chance against them I think we're in the best position we probably have been for a very long time to get something out of them we saw what Brighton did to them I think they're still settling Chelsea under Potter and it's a shame that you know we're going to still have to wait a little bit longer to play them because I think that then they're not quite there yet and maybe by the time we play them they will be there but. I hadn't thought about it until this question, but it, it's got me excited, Sammy. So I'm just going to say we're going to do it. I think we, we're ca- more than capable of beating them at home. I think at Stamford Bridge, I'd, if I could pick between the two, I'd love for us to win at Stamford Bridge. I think I, I'd rather win there than at home almost. That would be amazing. That's almost like the uh, the Nirvana for a Fulham fan, isn't it? A, a win at a win of that shithole um, George your thoughts on uh, where we'll get a scalp <laughs> no holding back um, well Dan says we've never been in a better position to beat Chelsea at home and I'd argue we were a few weeks ago when we were meant to play them at home and they had Thomas Tuchel um, I was getting scarily confident for that game um, but yeah <laughs> I, I actually don't tend to use the word Fulhamish very much, despite obviously having to say it twice yeah. a week. Um, but that, so the fact that our best ever chance to beat Chelsea was was upended because of the death of the reigning monarch was quite yeah. was, was quite Fulhamish, Fulhamish uh, if ever there was to be one. <laughs> I, I mean, I, w- I want to double down on the Chelsea, but I, I just think whenever I get my hopes up with Chelsea, it it's just them, isn't it? I mean, I, th- I thought we had a really good chance a couple of years ago and then Robinson got sent off and it was such a needless red card and Cavalero had a chance from about eight yards out, which he absolutely spooned as he did quite a lot that season. So that was a bit gutting. Um, if we're going to get a scalp... I mean, the the way we're playing, I think if we had Mitrovic, Reed and Tete on Sunday, I'd have quite a lot of confidence going into Sunday, despite how much United have improved on Eric Ten Hag. I, th- I think in general, the way... The way Tottenham are playing at the moment, I wouldn't mind a go at Tottenham at the cottage in the reverse fixture. But no, if 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 we if we ever got a win against Chelsea and I was there to see it, it would uh, go down as one of the better days of my life. Yeah. Does uh, does a win against Newcastle at St James's Park now count as a scalp? Now that they're kind of entering the uh, now they're entering the chat. I refuse to give them that credit. No, I we don't. Also, also we, we did it not that long ago. Yeah, we did it That's not that long ago, and we, we let we let Tim Ream take a penalty there, so they're they're nothing. It would be amazing still, but yeah, we, it's because we've done it recently. It's not quite as exciting. Uh, right, Stephen, your thoughts on a scalp? Yeah, well, let's look at the results, right? We've been to the Emirates, we lost 2-1. We've been to the Etihad, we lost 2-1. We've been to Spurs Stadium, we lost 2-1. We faced Liverpool at home, we drew 2-2. We are going to stuff some damn top six teams at Craven College 
we're going to get some free points and I would love it to be against Chelsea. I'm a little bit concerned about United just because of the they really seem to have sorted their shit out for want of a better phrase. Uh, but yeah, I think this is the year for Chelsea and I'm going to go to Stamford Bridge and pray that we can take something from them. But I really hope we can properly have a go at these teams at the cottage, Chelsea included. And I, oh, if we could get a famous Fulham win against Chelsea, we can all go to the pub afterwards and properly celebrate something we deserve, I feel. And I think the really frustrating thing here about this question is, in the last three times we've been in the Premier League, the, the time that the fans were there in the 18-19 season, I think we lost all 12 games to the top six, I believe. Whereas in the season, we couldn't go under Scott Parker. We went to United and got a draw. We went to Arsenal, we got a draw. We went to Tottenham, got a draw. We won at Liverpool. We got the first league win at Goodison. We won at Leicester and we couldn't see them. So it would be a little bit Fulhamish if we didn't start getting those big six scalps this season when we're actually quite a good team. But that Liverpool home game on the opening day was an absolute statement of intent. And we were all questioning how Silva was going to do, how we were going to do, even though we kind of had a bit of faith, um, especially after pre-season. I know pre-season is not everything, but you know, Benfica stuffed us and I was really worried when I was there at the time. Um, but then when we had that draw against Liverpool where we should have won, it was suddenly like, hold on, we are a really good team um, and it was exciting. So let's not let's not be too fearful, especially after yesterday. Final question. Does Everton away still count as a scalp? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it still would be magic. Or is the magic gone because we did win there in lockdown? I still don't think that count. I still think like any win away from home in lockdown does not mean that you've broken a curse. I think... Because it's a scalp if I think if a player accidentally runs into Lampard and he falls backwards on his ass, then that's <laughs> I just wanted to add a, if if we could have a little AOB, I just wanted to give a little shout out to Luke Harris. I thought he was actually really did a really good job when he came on yesterday. Yes. He was uh, particularly annoyed by the penalty. <laughs> he was very annoyed by the penalty, which you love to see as well. But I thought there was a couple of moments when he uh, he was very composed in possession. He got about. I was very worried that he got brought on because I thought this this feels like a bad decision. But I thought he, I know he was only on the pitch for what seven minutes, but I thought he massively held his own and was actually a positive contribution to our play towards the end of that game. And one of the half chances that we saw when I say half chance meant that we got around City's penalty area that started from him you know getting to a ball in midfield and I think he, that's it's really exciting to see that that's a, a huge amount of trust and maybe it was a time-wasting sub yes but if Marco's willing to send on Luke Harris at the Etihad in a game that's that's won all at that point we've got to be really excited I think we were going to see so we could see some really big things from him this year yeah no really impressive uh, to see him come on yesterday I think uh, yeah I think we're going to be seeing Luke uh, more and more as the uh, the season wears on uh, there was a couple of questions on Instagram um, about the Titan Capital Markets um, partnership which uh, you may have seen the news overnight that the club has uh, terminated their partnership with uh, Titan uh, if you heard um, us speak to Mark Martin Caladine about it a few weeks ago, who's the investigative journalist who kind of brought it to light. We also spoke to Tom Greatrix on Thursday's show about his kind of, I mean, he was almost apoplectic, really. I think um, it, Tom does, rarely uh, gets like properly animated, but I think you could, if you kind of read between the lines, I think he was pretty fuming about the whole situation and how the club kind of um, 
brushed off the FST's concerns. Um, there's a big piece in the Mail on Sunday today uh, from Nick Harris, um, which has seemingly blown the lid on the uh, on the whole thing. And uh, it seems that only uh, a ma- an, an expose in a, in a national Sunday paper seems to have made the club uh, change its mind. Um, we're going to go into that a little bit more on Thursday's show. Um, hopefully we'll have Peter back for that one. We'll have a bit more information um by then uh, it's obviously a, it's a topic that we've got to be careful with um i think we can all agree that it's an absolute disgrace what's happened here and the fact that this company has been allowed to use fulham's name um to promote its activities is awful but give us a few days thursday we'll uh, we'll cover it in a bit more depth but i know there'll be people wanting us to mention it so thought i would before the end of the show all we need to do in the rest of today's podcast is name it so dan what would you like to go for I don't often do this, but I'm going against the masses who who voted for Fulham in the bluegrass. And I apologise to him because he did well. He got a lot of likes, but I really did enjoy PFFC 11s for Fork's sake. Yeah, it was bonfire night and it all exploded in our face. So, uh, yeah, no, it's very, very good. Okay, right. We'll uh, we'll finish there for today. Thank you to my guest, Dan Cook. Thank you. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sammy. George Roster, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you, Sammy. Stephen Sheldrake, thank you. Brilliant to be here. Thanks. Um, I do enjoy that uh, on the uh, the system uh, that we use to record the podcast, anyone can just choose their name. Normally people put in their name, Dan, George or, or Stephen. Um, Dan Cook's name today is just pain. And George's name is I hate Harland, uh, which I think shows the frustration amongst the panel uh, on, uh, on, on yesterday's game. Hopefully today's been a little bit of a therapy session and Fulhamish will return in the week for the Thursday club. Uh, we'll be looking ahead to that Man United game next Sunday, which is the final game for the World Cup. But until then, have a lovely week. Come on, you whites. <laughs>